Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. We're just over six months away from the 2020 midterm elections, and the primary season is going to start picking up momentum heading into next month. As these elections pick up steam, we will see the topics and issues that are going to drive voter behavior become clearer. And I couldn't think of anyone I'd rather dive into this with than the one and only Mike Madrid. Mike is a national political strategist, our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics, my fellow co-founder of The Lincoln Project, and he lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. Mike, it's good to see you. It's numbers season. It is numbers season. Good to be with you. I'm excited about this. Absolutely. Uh, I hope you're hungry. (laughs) uh... (laughs) Eat some numbers. Let's start at the beginning, yeah? Uh, Yeah. I want to talk about some of the polling data uh, that we're watching right now. But before we do that, let's let's contextualize this conversation for folks. Um, Starting with how you read and interpret polling data. Uh, You've mentioned on the last couple of rounds uh, that we're getting into number season. Can you just lay out what you mean by that? Yeah, and, and let me back up a little bit too, because you know, by the nature of what 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 I do, what you and I do as political professionals, as campaign operatives, we use these tools a little bit differently, I think, than everybody else. Not, I think we do. I mean, it, and they're designed for a specific purpose. When we're looking at public-facing polls or some of these polls that come out from media companies or newspapers or things that you're going to see on like five thirty-eight, they're very oftentimes different instruments, or or we craft them differently for internal purposes on a campaign. Um, But the external polls do give us kind of what we call the mood of the electorate. And so what I'm looking for is usually something very different than what the prognosticators are looking for or the pundits are looking for or what, you know, people that are not doing campaigns uh, are looking for. The media really loves kind of the horse race stuff. Who's ahead? Who's behind? How much? What does that mean? And that's not what I'm looking for at this point in the cycle. Um, but I, it is number season, as you mentioned. This uh, public opinion is starting to matter a lot more than kind of the the what we call the off year, the first year of the Biden administration, for example. Last year, the honeymoon period of the you know first hundred days of the administration, whether or not he can get his legislative uh, agenda pack, passed or not. Uh, now, after the State of the Union is really after like January, heading into the uh, the midterms. I'm really tuning in and paying attention to a couple key data points because we're going to start seeing a lot of um, primaries coming up. We're going to start seeing the outcomes of different races throughout the country. Key demographics are going to start taking shape. And the gel of the news cycle is going to start forming and solidifying. And those set what we call the foundations of the of the election cycle, what 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 is really going to be driving the electorate? Are Republicans going to be supercharged? Are Democrats going to be supercharged? What does that mean for turnout? What issues are moving which way? Which candidates have vulnerabilities? And like I said, at this point, you know the the horse race, the who's ahead, who's behind by how many points is kind of interesting, but it's still very 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 early to make any kind of prognostication. What we're looking for really is fluidity. So that's kind of the, the overall big setup of, of kind of the way I, I certainly approach races that I'm doing. I think most political professionals are doing that uh, as well. Um, you know, everyone's got their own style, but this, this really, I think, overwhelmingly is the way political professionals uh, are, are, are at at this point in the, in the election cycle. Just to recap, as we get closer to the midterm elections, 
you're, for our listeners, you're going to hear a lot from cable news pundits, from people on Twitter about this or that new poll and how it means everything is falling apart or everything is better than we ever could have expected. Uh, but that's not what the polling data is actually showing us. So, um, Mike, how should they react then when someone says to them, this poll and this set of data in isolation proves X issue is the most important for the midterms? Unless you crafted the poll yourself and know the exact purpose of what it is that you're trying to divine, you have to really take it with a grain of salt. And it, it is difficult to kind of tell people, don't mind the, the polls, or each poll is a little bit different. They, they, they are important. They do tell us something, usually in aggregate right now. There will be outliers. We can talk about that. But, and there will be you know, people whose methodologies are a little bit more sound than others. There's some very flawed methodologies. I've talked a lot about this with the Latino vote. We'll probably explore some of that in just a little bit uh, as, we're, as, you know, as political professionals are trying to discern what the actual Latino electorate is. And these are all causing a whole grade, uh, uh, gradation and variation in outcomes. A lot of people just kind of want to say, the polls are wrong. Don't pay attention to them. They're all nonsense. And that's just simply not true. A, a, poll, a public opinion poll properly done, and I would say the vast majority of these polls that you are seeing, not all, but the vast majority of them are, are scientifically sound instruments to accurately gauge public opinion. That means they've got a sample size that is sufficient to represent the demographics of what the overall electorate looks like, whether it's national or whether it's in your local city or in your state, as long as a professional pollster is doing it, there's a very, very high likelihood that it is an accurate representation of public opinion at any given time. We always hear the snapshot in time, and that's true. I kind of don't like that term for a whole lot of reasons, but it is true. And so a lot of people, especially on Twitter, when I'll be putting out you know, data or information, will say, I've never been called you know, we're a country, you know, how can it be accurate? I've never been called. Nobody in my family has ever been called. There are, you know, 180 adult Americans that are eligible to vote. That's our pool. We can do a scientifically valid sample size, it, literally uh, at, a, at a thousand people, uh, even as low as 800 um, to get a plus or minus five. So if the chances of you getting struck by lightning are higher than being called by a pollster, <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's not a scientific valid instrument. Um, it, it very much is. And, and they are quite accurate. I mean, if you think about that, if you have come in with no understanding of polling to find out who those 800 people are and how you, what we call weight it, in other words, how many people are senior citizens, how many people are, are women, how many are Democrats, how many are Republicans, how many are Hispanic? How many are African-American? How many are white? All of these have to be representative, representative of the overall sample that you're looking for. And the better the, better the uh, representation is in your sample, the, the, the more scientific, the, the better your results are going to be. So then how do you look for trends in polls? What are the things that you're looking for when you get new data in? If we're looking, if, if, uh, if really at this point we're looking for, for, for fluidity between numbers, yeah. uh, as opposed to looking at the quote-unquote snapshot in time to tell us everything we want to know, how are you looking for trends between polls? Okay, that's a really, really good question. Because again, a, a poll, if, look at a poll as kind of like an off-ramp on a freeway. 
it's not necessarily where you're going to get off. It, it may be if that's when the election is, but if it's an off-ramp on the way to your destination, it's kind of a yard marker on a, it's a touchstone of what is happening as you're going along and ultimately reach your destination, which is election day. That's the way I like to, to, to kind of make an analogy of it. And so what that means is that every time you go past this, this milestone, you're using that as a data point to identify movement on the same question that you have been asking consistently. Do you approve or disapprove of the job that Joe Biden is doing? Do you believe that the Republicans should be in control of Congress? Yes or no? In, uh, in isolation, that one data point isn't telling you a whole lot. But when you've got weeks or months of data, the movement is what I'm looking for as a political professional, because if I'm seeing very little movement, it's going to really define my strategy. And what's going to refine it even more is the poll is going to tell me which people in that sample are the most likely to move. So that means, uh, and let me give a, a real specific example. When, when we were working on the Lincoln Project, we found very early on, and I'd been looking at data for years, there was extraordinarily little movement in the Republican base off of Donald Trump. Very, very little, historically little. The base was solid, as we would say. The base was intact. And what that meant is we had to get really good going with a surgical precision and identify that small smattering of Republican voters that we could move and then overlay that in the right geographic areas, in the right states, with the right amount of resources committed to it with the right message in order to win the race. That's the strategy of a campaign, and a poll is just one instrument. So we are seeing now, even, even now in this very hyper-partisan time, very little movement off of the party labels. We are in a very hyper-partisan time. Um, but we are, we, um, we are also in a time where we are defined more by what we are against than what, we are def- than what we define ourselves as standing for as Americans, both Democrats and Republicans. It's a concept called negative partisanship. And it's going to take on an increasing importance because I'm going to talk about some of the softness of Joe Biden's numbers. I am concerned, but I'm not concerned that the numbers are soft. I'm concerned because of the actions that I'm seeing and not seeing from the Biden administration that gives me pause on whether they or not they can correct the challenges that the polling is suggesting that they're facing at this moment in time. Is that clear? It's totally clear. So I just want to, you know, it is, I just want to recap. So, so as we're looking for, since we're not, we're not, you know, putting all of our faith into the quote unquote snapshot in time, we're looking for movement between polls on, on the same or very similar questions. What we're looking for in that movement is who's moving and what messages might, might, might best uh, help apply them away from or toward the candidate that we're looking for. Right. That's exactly right. So when we're working on a campaign, what types of decisions then can polling data help you make? What does it show you? What does it not show you? This is what we're, this is what I think we're now trying to get at. Um, and in this theme, you know, um, there's a, there's a concept called message testing. Mm-hmm. You want to explain how we do message testing in, in survey research as, so as listeners now sort of have in their mind, we're looking for movement between polls and in that movement, who's moving and why, and on what things we have a tool called message testing. Can you explain how we do that in, in survey research? Yes. Very important uh, part of political campaigns. And again, it, it starts u- usually many months out as we begin tracking a race so that we can start to see again the movement on on certain key issues. 
When we're talking about message testing, there's a big part of a poll that basically runs sample arguments. And we sample arguments for an issue or for a candidate and arguments against a candidate or against an issue. So, for example, if we were going to be testing Joe Biden, what Joe Biden means to the Democrats at this point in time, we would begin with a question, which most of these polls do. Do you approve of the way that Joe Biden is handling his job as president? And people will say yes or no. And then we'll say, how do you feel about how he's handling the situation in Ukraine? How do you feel about the situation he's handling with inflation? And then we'll dig even a little bit deeper on some of those issues and sometimes say, do you think that Joe Biden should be sending more arms or less arms to Ukraine? Do you think he should be taking more action or less action uh, into uh, on inflationary issues? Do you think that he should be doing more on the supply chain? And the more we start going down these different messages, they start to literally delineate and tell us which groups or which segments of the voter base are responsive to those issues. And we even take it a little bit further and we'll say, are you somewhat well, you know, inclined to say that? Or are you very strongly inclined to say that? And that gives us uh, what we call an intensity. And that intensity tells us how much people are more likely to be driven exclusively by that message. So sometimes you'll get a broader message where people will be like, yeah, I'm concerned about Ukraine, um, but I'm really more in really more uh, concerned about being able to pay for gas and groceries at this moment in time. And inflation uh, is, is, is a, I'm very extremely concerned about this because it's affecting my daily life. And so that tells us we need to focus more on inflation than we should be uh, focusing on Ukraine because that's where voters are already predisposed to have um, their most motivating opinions. And that's where we want to have the conversation with them. And at the end of that, digging into uh, specifics of individual arguments, we might also ask the same question again that we yes. asked at the top, which is the, the very big, broad question, do you approve or disapprove? And the movement between the first asking of that question and the last asking of that question tells us a lot. It tells us an extraordinarily uh, large amount of what um, what we call that process, Ron, and this is a good point, is is it's important oftentimes when uh, sometimes in polling is to start with um, a, a basic question of, of who you're voting for and why we run through this message testing, a battery of tests of questions. And then we ask the same question at, at the end, that middle piece, the message testing is what we call simulating the campaign environment and simulating the campaign environment means what we're trying to do is literally construct what the voter is likely to hear in terms of the arguments for and against from both sides. And then when we ask the question again at the end, nine times out of 10, people are going to change their minds once they start to go, oh, I didn't know that candidate was for this. Oh, I didn't know that candidate was against this. I'm for this candidate now. I may have been for him or her at the beginning, and I've changed my mind. That movement is the whole crux of a campaign. It is, it is the entirety of how you build the frame for your campaign and develop its strategy. And now is the moment in time early on in, in the election cycle where you are asking those questions for the first time and the polling is happening, which is going to design the framework for what the fight is going to be like over the next few months and what these campaigns are going to be like. And you're going to start hearing campaigns and both parties start to reflect their strongest issues, their strongest opinions 
proactively, and you're also going to start to see their attack lines being drawn on where they need to start driving the electorate in order to position themselves in the best possible situation. So that's what we're trying to accomplish with polls at this point. Like I said, the actual horse race is, is, I don't want to say it's meaningless, but it's a small data point compared to that shift and that change in public opinion. The, the art of the political consultant is to move public opinion to enough of a degree to, to have your candidate or your cause win. And that's why I'm saying it's the beginning of number season is because we're all out there with those first early polls, assessing what's going on, looking at the issues matrix, simulating the campaign environment, and testing our battle plans before we actually start engaging in the actual contests that are about to kind of dominate the news cycles for the next few months. I think this is one of the most... Uh, I'm glad we're just taking the time to do a little bit of context here because I think this is... This 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 information, this context makes all the difference in the world if you are an average consumer of political news and and political polling and you're a Twitter user, right? Because it makes the difference between uh, understanding what's happening and completely misreading everything that 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 is happening. Mm-hmm. So, um, so when we get a poll, um, there's always let's talk about samples just for mm-hmm. a moment, and then we'll dive into the uh, the NBC News uh, poll that we've been discussing. Yeah. When we get a poll, there's always a sample size. Uh, and a lot of the regular national opinion uh, polling outfits like YouGov and Marist and Quinnipiac uh, use between 1,200 and 2,000 respondents. You mentioned we could have an 800-person scientifically sound uh, uh, sample size. How do pollsters take that sample and estimate what it means for the broader population? Um, and then uh, you know, we should talk about weighting and what some of the noticeable issues are uh, that you can run into when you begin weighting responses, especially Latino voters? Great question. A lot to unpack here, but it's really getting under the hood and understanding how this actually works. And it's really central. Getting all of these questions right is kind of like flying to the moon, right? You, you've got to have every one of your gauges accurate because even if they're slightly off, the further you get out, thousands and thousands of miles off into the distance, those small differences can become hundreds of miles and you miss your target entirely. So we're constantly refining all of these questions that were asked and we're trying to make a better assessment and we pull throughout the campaign to make sure that our finger is on the pulse in the right way, that our message matrix still works. And if there's the introduction of new issues, a war starts, a, um, a domestic conflict happens, uh, again, during the 2020 campaign, it was happening a lot. We saw the George Floyd murder uh, really reshape the race in terms of questions of race. Then uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passes away in the middle of this. How does that affect the race? A week later, Donald Trump, you know, has COVID, right? Like, what what does all of this yeah. mean? And we ha- it was one of the craziest races I've ever dealt with because we that were was. adjusting so much so quickly on major thematics that you have to build your campaign in a way that can be as flexible as possible and adjust. Because you start to, you know, target your fire, your message fire in different directions as a result. So back to the broader question. If you're looking at 1,200, a sample size of 1,200, what you're trying to do is get enough of a, well, again, a representative sample of, of people who are registered to vote. And there's a distinction between registered voters and, and the overall population. Okay. And some people will point to that. A lot of polls in the off year when there are no elections will poll all all people. Like we're just trying to get a, an assessment of how Americans generally feel about an issue. They tend to pivot to just registered voters 
as it gets into uh, the, the election cycle year. So a midterm year or a presidential year, you're going to see a lot more foc- polls focused on registered voters because they're only concerned about people who actually have the ability or the eligibility and, frankly, the interest and desire to vote. As we get even closer, you can start seeing something called the LV, which is the likely voter model, which we know from vote histories, people who have voted uh, and how often they vote, because some people register when they're 18 and maybe voted once and haven't voted in the last 10 or 20 years, their propensity or likelihood to vote is so low that we usually kind of kick them out of the likely voter screen in order to get a better assessment of how people who are actually going to show up and vote are determining their uh, vote choices. It's extremely important because then you start to hear the word turnout a lot. And this is the part of the big guessing game of who is actually going to turn out and vote. What is the likely composition of the accurate uh, reflection, excuse me, of the electorate who is going to actually show up? And we know that voters who tend to be wealthier, older, whiter, uh, have a much higher propensity or likelihood of voting than those that are younger, poorer, and browner or blacker, or more minority. And so we see extremely large gyrations, uh, huge deltas between the presidential election cycle, which has massive turnouts, always, almost always record turnouts, huge turnouts. We saw that in 2020. Everybody's voting. Everybody's focused on it. Everybody understands the importance of it. And then there's the, that, the contrast that with the midterms, and the midterms have much lower uh, uh, turnout numbers because people are less interested. They're less engaged in that. And so the electorate has always, in the midterms, or at least in the last hundred years, been more reflective of an older, wealthier, whiter electorate making those decisions in the off terms. So the sample, the actual sample of what you're trying to reflect as a pollster is a huge part of the expertise and the art of being a pollster. Most of it is based off of historical um, um, results. We look back at at previous elections. We look at the long-term trend. We make assessments based off of some other key indicators. For example, in some states, you can look at um, the number of absentee ballots requested, um, there was a, a real shock in, in, in the polling community when, when we were going to all mail ballot elections because we weren't exactly sure who was going to show up because no one had ever done that before. And how do you make projections when this is completely unique and no one's ever, ever done this before? But by and large, historical models are pretty accurate. Um, and so they tell us within a few points what the electorate is basically going to look like. In 2008, you had a huge spike with young people and African-Americans in um, Obama's uh, first election cycle, uh, in, in Donald Trump's second election cycle, a thing that did throw us with this extraordinary turnout of rural, non-college-educated white voters. Uh, Donald Trump did overperform with that demographic in a way that no candidate since Reagan had in 1984. So these, those, and nobody's modeling reflected that. Now, those, those do not mean that the polling is necessarily wrong, especially a polling of, of polls, but they do affect some of the accuracy on what it is that you are, what, what it is that we are looking for. I'd love for you to talk about the Latino sampling problem, or maybe just yeah. we, we did talk about this on a recent uh, roundup a few weeks back, but because we're talking about sampling and how important it is to get these dials right for yes. accuracy purposes and the difficulty that, that pollsters are having adequately sampling Latino voters, 
And for all the reasons that we've discussed previously, how crucial the Latino vote is going to be in the swing, in the swing, uh, the swing counties of the swing states for the 2024 election, yes. they're going to be just as crucial in the midterm. So can you just reprise that briefly? Yeah. So if you aren't you know, thoroughly confused or we haven't lost you because this has been so in the weeds <laughs> yet, get ready, sharpen your pencils, because we're going to take a real deep dive on some of the biggest dynamics that are actually driving the electorate. And remember, a lot of these races, as, I've, as I say all the time, history is made on the margins. There were, you know, um, 156 million voters, almost 160 million voters in, in the country in 2020, and it came down to 30,000 vote margins. So again, you, it, you have to use a surgical precision to understand what you're doing and why you're doing it in what areas. And understanding the Latino vote is going to be really critical this year. So let me explain some of the challenges that have been happening. If you take a hypothetical 1,000 voters, um, which again is a sample size that is sufficient to do an overall sample size that is reflective of the United States, and then you assume that the uh, correctly that the Hispanic vote is about 11 percent of that 1,000, uh, you then basically have a sample size of 110 voters that are Hispanic. So if 110 voters in your model of 1,000 are Hispanic, that 110 in the aggregate is a good reflection of the overall number of, of what the country looks like. But when you pull out a sample size alone of 100 and make prognostications based on that, the, the, the variation is exponentially greater. In other words, one or two respondents or four or five respondents that may not be reflective have a disproportionate amount of influence on what you can then credibly claim as an accurate reflection of Latino or Hispanic public opinion. And because what pollsters have historically done, and most still do, is they put out these polls of 1,000 voters that represent the electorate, and then they take out the subsample of the 110 Hispanics and start making statements based off of what those 110 say. And that's not an accurate, that is not scientifically accurate in terms of public opinion. And so what you're beginning to see, this is one problem in the methodology. I'm, I'm going to talk about a couple of others in just a second. What happens at that point is you begin to have these plus or minuses, as, as we call them, to, to scientifically gauge it in a poll of a, of a thousand voters, the plus or minus. Uh, um, variation is about two and a half, three percent. With one, uh, with with one hundred and ten, the variation is probably like nine or ten points, which is an extremely large variation, almost to the point where it's not really a credible poll. And it's why, like in the Virginia races that we just had in the governor's race, you had one outlet basically saying uh, the Republican won, and the other one saying, "Oh no, it was a." a traditional, you know, normal turnout where Hispanics voted 30% for the Republican, 25% for the Republican, huge variations. And the reason why is the sample sizes are too small. If you want to look at Hispanic public opinion and get a really scientific look, you should go in and do an 800 sample or 1000 sample of just Hispanic voters and get that plus or minus down to one and a half to two and a half points. And that will give you a really good example or a snapshot of this Hispanic public opinion. Now, I'm going to get even a little nerdier here. There's a lot of gradations and deviations on that sample of, of literally what a Hispanic or Latino voter is. 
Okay. And here's some of the challenges. Do you approach people in Spanish or in English when we know that the preponderance of Latino voters, the overwhelming majority, I should say, of Hispanic voters are monolingual English speakers or English-speaking dominant bilingual speakers? There's a stereotype that Latinos are, of course, Spanish-speaking, or you go and buy Spanish-language media to communicate with Latino voters. You're talking about very small numbers of actual voters in the Hispanic electorate that are consuming their political information on those mediums. And so that the debate of how much you should be communicating and asking the poll and those respondents amongst monolingual dominant Spanish speakers or monolingual dominant uh, English speakers is a huge point of contention because the variations in public opinion generationally are, or there is a chasm. It's not a small difference. It's enormous. And so that has a huge part of it. Another part is Hispanics have an interracial marriage rate of over 50%. And so oftentimes a woman of Hispanic heritage marries a man of non-Hispanic heritage and no longer has a Hispanic surname. And unless you're looking for that in the data rolls, a country of origin, you're not going to see that reflected in a sample because just because she married somebody who has a white surname does not mean she's any less Hispanic, but she's not going to show up on the sample. And so she won't be asked. And that creates a gender variation. And we should note that she's not going to show up in the sample because the way many pollsters sample for Hispanic or Latino voters is by using a Hispanic surname list to check again, right? That's exactly right. And thank you for that clarification. That's exactly why is simply pulling a Hispanic surnamed list alone is not an accurate reflection because of that dynamic. And again, the interracial marriage rate, when it's over 50%, it means literally a woman of Hispanic descent is more likely to marry a non-Hispanic than a Hispanic. So it's a big problem. It's not a small niche problem of three, four, five points. It's over half of women in the sample have this, 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 this characteristic. So there's a lot. And as, as it grows, as, as the, as the Latino vote grows and it grows dramatically and rapidly in so many different areas of the state, all of these variations come into question. One of the solutions that was attempted, and I think rather incorrectly, was using what's called the Hispanic density matrix, which means they would go into look at really Hispanic dense precincts where there were large Latino diasporas or, or communities of Hispanic communities and oversample those in order to gauge more Latino public opinion. Well, the good news is they did get more Latino public opinion. The bad news is it wasn't reflective of the overall Latino electorate. And so it was giving them these, que- these answers were saying immigration was much more important to the Latino community because in Hispanic dense precincts, you had more monolingual Spanish speakers and you had more recent immigrant arrivals and you had people who had much more of an intimate experience with the immigration experience. Um, they, were not, they were missing second and third generation Hispanics who were far removed from that, had diametrically opposed positions on that. And it was really one of the things that I think hurt the Hillary Clinton campaign deeply, and it really, the same people were doing that same work for Joe Biden, and they never reflected to gauge this sample of their Hispanic or Latino votes, and it created a, the problems that you're seeing with the Hispanic community today. And I just want to bookmark this for listeners. Uh, the reason that we're spending time talking about this and getting nerdy and going into the weeds, um, we should flag that we recently had a conversation about just how pivotal understanding the Latino vote is in in shifting 
power in many of these uh, seats. So we'll bookmark that conversation so people can, they'll get a lot more out of the material that we just talked about that you just, that you just explained if they go back and listen to that conversation. Because to understand the, uh, the, 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 as, we, as we said, the swing counties in the swing states, not just for the 2024 presidential election, but in some of the most competitive House races in 2022, mm-hmm. you have to understand the Latino vote. And if you weren't accurately sampling and surveying the Latino vote in these highly competitive areas, you're, you're going to miss the vote. You're going to misread the electorate, and you're going to misread the messages that you should run to them. Four, four, of, four of the most competitive house seats under the new lines have Hispanic populations over 38%. They, they, are, they are new Hispanic seats, one in Texas, one in Colorado, one in New Mexico, one in California. There's another two in California that have, have about 20%. So, and, and interestingly about all those states is the population there is almost entirely Mexican-American. So the narrative of even the Cuban, you know, what's going on in Miami-Dade and the anti-socialist stuff and the WhatsApp stuff, that's kind of nonsense. It doesn't really affect what's happening here. It's not a Puerto Rican vote. Those uh, dynamics are very different. The control of the House of Representatives uh, will, in very large part, run through Hispanic communities of Mexican-American descent, and whichever parties can figure it out are going to do well, and those that don't, won't. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.